Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today. We pray that this message blesses you and encourages you. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just look us up at newriverchurch.org. I want to start this morning with just a statement. <clears throat> well, the first, the first scripture we're going to look up is 2 Corinthians. So you want to get to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. That'll give you a second to get there. But start with this question or this statement. When being a Christian becomes tiring, becomes burdensome, becomes heavy, that's a surefire indication that you've stopped following Jesus and that you've gotten stuck in religion. Religion is burdensome. Religion is tiring. Religion wears you out. That's what it does. Following Jesus is simple. It's not easy, don't get me wrong, because it requires dying to myself. It requires laying down my own agenda. It requires, it requires that I set that aside in favor of adopting his will and going where he leads. It's simple, but it's not easy. Religion, if you think about it, in a sense, is uh, difficult. But it's kind of simple, but it's easy to understand, isn't it? It tells you to just do these things, follow these rules, and you'll be okay. But it gets heavier. The problem with religion is this. There's never enough. You never do enough. And that's why it's burdensome. And if you're here this morning and you're feeling worn out, and you're caught in that trap where you're never doing enough, whether it's, whether it's doing enough service, enough caring for other people, whether it's doing enough Christian disciplines, enough prayer, enough Bible, enough church, enough whatever. Like if you're here and that's the, the, the weight that you're feeling this morning, I, I have good news for you. I mean, good news is this. You can let go of that because... There's something incredibly powerful in the simplicity of loyalty. And that's the message this morning. It's just the simplicity of loyalty. I want you to hear the Apostle Paul's heart as he wrote this to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he said this, verses, uh, well, we'll just start with verse 1 to verse 4. He says, I hope that you'll put up with me in a little foolishness. I love Paul, how he does that. Yes, please put up with me. Here, here, now he gets to the meat. He says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. I get that, you know, as a pastor, if I could, a little uh, aside, I understand that. Because I feel that godly jealousy for you. It, it, it breaks my heart every time I see someone of you <clears throat> over the years in ministry, who has left, not just left the church, but left Jesus, or I see you get sidetracked into stuff that is just dumb, or I see you start to compromise or water down your own walk with Jesus. You know, I get that. I get that, that heart. That's a pastoral heart. I, I'm jealous for you, he says, because I've committed you to one husband, so you don't belong to me as a pastor. You belong to Jesus. You're his first. And it just bothers. It bothered Paul, and it, I can tell you as a pastor, it bothers me deeply when I see you wandering away from that. 
So he goes into verse 3. He says, but I'm afraid, he says, that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, look at that. You put up with it easily enough. You put up with it easily enough. You put up with it easily enough. Why do we do that? Why do we put up with things that are not Jesus? Why do we put up with different gospels? Why do we put up with different spirits? Why do we? Why? Is it perhaps that we've become so um, caught up in our own culture of tolerance that as Christians we want to appear tolerant? We want to, so we water things down. And so we put up with these things that are not Jesus, and we know they're not. He says, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, you see what happened? Here's Adam and Eve. They're enjoying a perfect relationship with God, aren't they? I mean, they're, li they're living perfection. <clears throat> it's hard for us to imagine, but they were. And even in that state, living perfection, Eve sees this fruit on a tree, and she's attracted to it. The Bible says that, that she saw the fruit, and it was pleasing to the eye, and it looked good, and it looked like it would give her wisdom, it says. So in that moment, she's literally lured away from this simplicity of loyalty. She's got a perfect relationship with God, living in perfection. At that point, ladies, can you imagine, a perfect relationship with her husband, right? She's living in perfection. And suddenly there's something on that tree that she says, you know, I know that God is good and all that, but look at that. And that's where it begins. When you put the word but in your loyalty and your devotion to Jesus, that's where the slide begins. You see, we compromise. We put up with it easily enough, Paul says. We think, yes, I know that Jesus is the only way, but, well, there's all these good people. No. See, when it comes down to it, the simplicity of loyalty says, I've given up my right to have my own opinions about things, and I'm going to stick with what Jesus says, and I'm going to stick with what he tells me to do, and that's where I stand. And let the cards fall however they may. And so we got three examples in the Bible of, of, this, of this tension at play. And I wanted to look at these three examples. And they're all pretty graphic examples in a sense, but I call them, the, the, it's the contrast between, let's say, the audacity of religion and then the simplicity of loyalty, okay? So these three examples all go together, in fact. You know, one of the beautiful things about the Bible is that the Bible is a comprehensive story. You know that? It's, there's a plot through the whole thing. And it's beautiful, which is amazing because it's written over the time span of a several thousand years, like, like 50 some different authors, something like that, 40 different authors, you know, three different languages. I mean, it's pretty crazy that a, a book that's compiled like that would have 
a comprehensive story, but it does. It's the story of God's working in the world to have a relationship with people like us. God has always desired that he would be our God, we would be his people. That's his thing. That's what he's looking for. And so the scripture actually gives us the history of God working in the history of the world to make that happen. And we see in scripture there's these three times where God's doing a new thing in his relationship with people. There's like a new thing starting. He's taking us just a step deeper and something drastic happens to bring us, to, 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 to make sure that we attach ourselves to him and we're not led astray like Eve was into some slick new idea. So we avoid the audacity of religion and we cling tight to the simplicity of loyalty. The first example is in Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, if you look up in your Bibles there, Leviticus chapter 10 it reads this, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers. They put fire in them and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. You see that up in verse 1? What kind of fire do they offer before the Lord? It's an unauthorized fire. See, here's what's happening. It's a new day in God's relationship with people. Moses has rescued the people of Israel. They're now, they're now forming into a nation of God's people. And, and Moses has built the tabernacle. And they're beginning to get things rolling. God's presence is right there. Like he is now dwelling among his people in the tabernacle. And it's so awesome. And God has instituted these priests, the first priests. And the priest's job was to be a bridge between God and people. So that between people and God and both back and forth. This is the, brid, this is the, the priest's job. And God sets it up so that Aaron, who's the brother of Moses, and his descendants, they would be the priests in Israel. So these are the very first priests doing this very first job where they're being the bridge between God and people. And what happens? One day, soon after they begin, Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, offer this unauthorized fire before the Lord. God didn't ask for it. God didn't want it. And they gave it to him anyway. See, this is the audacity of religion. The audacity to think that I can give God something he hasn't asked for or something that he wants and expect that he's supposed to just take it. Think about it. Would you want to be treated that way? Like, like let's say it's my birthday and you say, hey, hey, Rouse, uh, I know you didn't ask me for a birthday present, but I got you one. And it's probably not what you want, but it was on sale. It was cheap, so I figured I'd get it for you. And, and you hand me this pink umbrella, right? You're like, well, now what am I supposed to do with that? Am I supposed to be thankful for the pink umbrella that I didn't want, don't need, didn't ask for, that you got on sale, that you got as an afterthought, like, Am I supposed to be content with that? You say, no, right? That's kind of weird. It's sort of offensive even if I think about it. 
because you don't really care about what I want. You just found something cheap and it suits your needs. That's what religion does. Religion says, yeah, I know what the heart of God is. I know what God, God has expressed his desires. He's expressed them clearly. But you know, God, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give you this instead. I'm going to give you this unauthorized fire. You see that? And then we have the audacity to expect that God should just accept that. Do you see how crazy that is? See, we still do it. Let's think about the ways that we still do this. We know what the Bible says about tithing. It's pretty clear he's laid it out. And yet, we make excuse after excuse after. You know, God, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this instead. We know what God's heart is about forgiveness. We know that he expects that you, as his people, would forgive those who wrong you. And yet, how many people in this very room are still holding unforgiveness towards someone else? You know it, but you say, God, yeah, but I can't do that. It's too difficult. I'm not going to do it. I know what you say, but I'm going to do this. Does this make sense? Every time I do that, I'm doing the same thing that these guys did. I'm offering unauthorized fire, and I'm expecting that God's just going to receive the half-hearted thing that I do, even though it's in direct disobedience to what he has asked for. This, my friend, is the audacity of religion. How often do we approach God with the music that we like, the songs that we like, the church services that we like, the prayers that we like? How often do we say, you know, I don't like that. I don't like it when they sing that song. Well, who cares that you don't like it when they sing that song? Like, what if that's the song that God wanted in that moment? See? You see what I mean? I know that we have our preferences. You have yours. I have mine. Hey, that's, there's nothing wrong with you having your preferences. What I'm saying is that when it comes to, the, to loyalty to Jesus, my preference doesn't really matter that much. It's what's he want, because that's what I want to give him. Anything else is unauthorized fire. The second scenario we see is found up in 2 Chronicles chapter 13. So go up to 2 Chronicles chapter 13, and again, it's another new day in the history of God working with people. Now they are a nation. The Israelites are a, a legit nation, and they have a godly king, King David. And David has worked to organize the music and the singers and the, the worship. It's structured. It's awesome. And David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant, which is the, the, little, you know, the little gold box that represented for the Israelites. It represented the very presence of God. And now King David is bringing that Ark into Jerusalem where now we can Yes, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and it's going to be awesome. God's presence is there, and we're going to worship him there. And he's got the Levites and the singers, and it's going to be fantastic. It's a new day in their relationship with God. Here's what happens. Second Chronicles, or I should say First Chronicles, rather. I'm sorry. First Chronicles, chapter 13. Forgive me. First Chronicles, 
I should probably wear my glasses when I do this. First Chronicles chapter 13, we start with verse 7. He says, so they moved the ark of God from Abinadab's house on a new cart. Everybody say new cart. New cart. What kind of cart was it? It was a new one. I mean, after all, it is the ark of God. So you don't want, to, you don't want them to ride a jalopy, right? So you put them on a new cart. That's what you do. And they have Uzzah and Ahio guiding it. David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God with songs, harps, lyres, timbrels, cymbals, trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Kedon, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and he struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of God that day, and he asked, how can I ever bring the ark of God to me? He did not take the ark to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months, and the Lord blessed his household and everything he had. I wonder what kind of rules Obed-Edom had in his house about the ark. Hey, kids, don't touch that. <laughs> right? <laughs> you think, whew. Um, anyway, so that's not the point. The point is this. You see, you see what, we have, what we have here is this. Again, it's a new day, and, and God's presence is now is like in this ark of the covenant. It represents his very presence and they're moving it now to the city of Jerusalem, the city of David, and, and, they're, and they're ready to celebrate and ready to make this the, the central place of worship. And it's going to be fantastic. And they put, the, they put the ark on a cart, on an ox cart. You say, well, there's, what's wrong with that? It was a new cart. Well, what's wrong with that is this. That's not how God told them to do it. That's what's wrong with it. God was very explicit and very plain that the Ark of the Covenant was only to be carried by Levites and it was only to be carried on poles. The Ark of the Covenant had rings on it and the Levites put the rings through the poles and they lifted it up and carried the Ark on their shoulders and they were not permitted to touch it. You see, the idea was this. These guys were treating the Ark of the Covenant like it was some sort of package. They were delivering it to Jerusalem, not carrying it. The concept is that the Levites were meant to feel the weight of God's presence on their shoulders as they carried the Ark wherever it went. And these guys are treating it like it's an Amazon package. I mean, let's put it, it's, it's on a new truck at least, but that's not how God said that it needed to be carried. So they were living in disobedience, and God is patient with that. You notice he's patient with that, and then God's patience runs out when what happens? Uzzah, the oxen stumbles, and Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the ark, and that's when God had enough. You're touching the ark. It's, it's as if Uzzah is thinking to himself that his sinful hand 
is better than the dirt. And God's saying, it would be better for my ark to fall to the ground than for it to be touched with your sinful hand. Think about it. The dirt is more pure than uses hand. The dirt never lied. Dirt never cheated. Dirt never stole. Dirt never lusted. See? R.C. Sproul actually says it this way. R.C. Sproul is, uh, he's with the Lord now, but he was a theologian. And he, and he says this in his uh, commentary on this section. He says, the dirt has never committed cosmic treason. I like that. The dirt has never committed cosmic treason. But Uzzah had. Because, and so have you, by the way. So have I. Every human being has. Because we've all sinned. We've all fallen short. That's, that's just that's the way we are. And so Uzzah, you see, flippantly assumed that his sinful hand is more righteous than the ground. And in that moment, he's helping God out. And you see, this is the audacity of religion. The audacity of religion is to somehow think that God needs my help. That my dirty hand, that my dirty hand is enough to help out the God of the universe because he needs me. Friends, that is not so. Not so at all. We still do it. We still do it. Every time we act as God's PR team before the world, we are doing the same thing that Uzzah did in setting the ark. You know what I mean? Let's just be honest. The gospel is offensive. Let's just be plain about it, right? The Bible says some pretty hard things. And you and I both know that our culture is living in direct opposition to what Scripture says. We know that. But how often are you tempted to water it down or to soften the message a little bit as if somehow God needs you to be his PR guy? Because, you know, God, I'm sure he didn't mean it quite this harsh. So let me just, you know, tone it down a little bit here, Lord, so that they can receive it maybe. Or really is it so that they don't reject me, the messenger? But every time I do that, I'm doing the same thing that Uzzah did. I'm acting as God's PR. I'm putting my sinful hand to the ark, and I'm pretending that somehow he needs me to help him out because his message is a little too hard these days, God. I'm not advocating that we become jerks. That's not what I'm at all suggesting. But we understand Scripture is tough on some things, isn't it? We all know them. So, friends, it's like this. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Second, 1 Corinthians 2.14, it says, The natural man sees the things of God as foolishness. So this is what we're dealing with. This is what we're working with, my friends. And you and I soften the tone. Does God need my help? No. No. So you and I can be free to, to stand. You know, when people accuse me, I find sometimes I get accused of being narrow-minded, you know. As Christians, we are sometimes. You know, I, I often like to respond to that just by saying, you know, listen, I'm not narrow-minded. The truth is, 
I'm, I'm weak, and, and you can work me over good, and if it were up to me, I'd let you right in, because that's me. I'm weak. Jesus is the one who has said he's the only way. See, he's the one that you have to reconcile with, not me. I'm just saying that I believe it. That's what I'm saying. And, and I would love to be able to help you to understand and help you to see Jesus the way that I do. But you need to understand, I'm not the one who's narrow-minded. See, Jesus is the one who says he's God. And he's the one that you need to reckon with. Does that make sense? Anyway. And so, anyway, okay. We'll move on. So the third scenario is this. Third scenario is up in the New Testament. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And again, it's another new day in the history of God with his people. Now, God is not just dwelling among his people in a tabernacle or in a temple, but now he's actually dwelling in his people. The Holy Spirit has now come into the people of God, right? He's now living in your heart and my heart. And this is Acts chapter 5. And the result of that, Acts chapter 5 tells us, is something just breathtaking. Like these early Christians, these are the first Christians, these guys were practicing extreme generosity, like off-the-charts generosity. They were literally selling their houses and giving all the money away. Wrap your mind around that one. That's, that's just insane, right? This is, how, this is how the Holy Spirit's moving in the hearts of these people. They're, they're living out this kind of extreme generosity. So now this is the, the scenario, and into this we have this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. Acts chapter 5, verse 1, now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of pro- they also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward. They wrapped up his body and carried him away and buried him. After three hours later, about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Do you want to rethink your offering today? Just, just a little joke. Just a little joke. Just a joke. Right? So, so you see what's, so here's, you see what's happening. Let's be clear. Ananias and Sapphira... They were not obligated to give all of the money that they had made. That's pretty clear in there, isn't it? Nobody was telling them you had to sell 
you know, your property and you had to give 100% of it to the Lord. Like, that's, that's not in there. That's what was being done. But this couple, kind of feeling the pressure, the group pressure, and wanting to look better than they were, decided together that they would keep some money back, but that they would tell everybody that, hey, we're giving everything so that they can be a part of that club too. And you see, this is the audacity of religion. The audacity of religion says, as long as you look the right way, then you can fit in and be a part of this Christian club. Look at you, you're so holy. Except these guys had failed to realize that the Holy Spirit of God is living in them. And they were lying, not just to the church, but they're lying to the Holy Spirit. As a result, they died. That's, that's the audacity of religion. It's to think that I can make myself look good. To, this is like the epitome of religion, isn't it? As long as I check off these right boxes, well, then I must be okay. We look good because I have the acceptable behaviors that fit in with the club, right? But really, my heart is far away from God. I give him lip service. I mean, the Bible talks about it so much. I've given lip service, but my heart is far from him. And God says, listen, I don't play that game. You know, this is the simplicity and the beauty of loyalty. The beauty of loyalty is this. Jesus has already paid the price, so I don't have to look a certain way. And, and he's already given, he's already forgiven me of all of my sin. And Jesus already knows who I am. Like, he doesn't get surprised by me. Jesus knows the bonehead that I am. And, and he loves me. He draw, he, he, he's received me as that. Isn't that awesome? So I don't have to put on any show. I, this is who I am, and Jesus loves me as I am. But then the beauty of knowing Jesus is he doesn't let me stay that way, does he? You know, I heard a great story, and I would, I'll send it to you if you would like it. I've actually sent it to a few people, but a, a powerful testimony of a, of, a, of a girl who was transgender, and she went through all of the all of the, she had a mastectomy, had a hysterectomy to become a, a man. And her testimony is powerful, powerful, because she talks about how everything that she did, none of it satisfied, essentially. She just was still empty, still empty. She even married a, a man who, who was transgender and thought he, said he was a woman. So you have a, a, a woman who says she's a man and a man who says he's a woman, and now they're together. And she says, and we were like the, we were like the happiest couple. We just thought it was great. Like, this is beautiful. Actually, this is her testimony. And she said, we were just so, you know, but at the same time, we both knew it was empty. And then she started to get, like, this feeling like it's all fake. She, she started to see the, 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 the fraud in it, in her own life, right? And then, and, but she's resistant to the Lord. It's a powerful testimony. Because then her mom has this Bible study group 
Gotta love moms and Bible study groups. I mean, really? So the mother has her, the mother has her do a website for her Bible study group, and, she's, and he, she pays her. So she's doing, the, she's doing it for money, and she's reading the Word as she's doing the website. And she talks about how the Word began to just pierce her heart. She began to get a deep hunger for Jesus. And then she eventually gave her life to Christ as a, as a guy. And, and this is what I thought was cool was, she, at first she said, you know, she realized Jesus loves me as a man. And she got saved, all right, in this way. And then, but she said this, but I didn't know that he wouldn't leave me that way. And then I won't tell you the rest of the story. It's powerful what all God has done to restore this person. It's crazy powerful. And I'm happy to share it with you. I can, you just let me know. I'll text it to you. But the point is this. Jesus loved her right where she was. That's the power of loyalty. That's the power of relationship. Religion doesn't let you do that. Religion says, no, you have to dress up, you have to clean this and look this way and in order to fit in. You have to do what Ananias and Sapphira did. You have to lie, essentially, in order to be accepted. And God says, no, I already paid for all that. I love you right there. He climbs into our pit and he walks with us out. It's the beauty of loyalty to Jesus. You know, and I like to say this, it's the truth is, Jesus being the only way for salvation, friends, it actually is the very thing that we are all deeply longing for. Think of it this way. If Jesus is not the Savior, and if you and I are, are not saved by grace entirely, right, entirely, he did the whole work and he offers it to us for free. If that's not true, then it's impossible for us to ever love or experience love. And love is the thing that we all want. Because think about it. In order to love somebody else, I have to give it to them. They're, it's others-focused. But if Jesus... How do I word this? I say that's right. So if Jesus is not the only way, if I'm not saved by grace, then that means that every good work I do is really just self-preservation. Every good work I do is just somehow trying to earn another point, is somehow trying to balance the scales of justice in heaven so that I can be a good enough person to get to heaven. Am I making any sense? Like, but because I'm saved by grace... Now Jesus has taken that off the table, so now I'm completely free, like he gave me salvation. I didn't earn it, so now I'm actually free to be able to love, to give myself away, because I'm not doing it out of self-preservation. There's nothing I get out of it, because my eternity is already secured. It's already been paid for. Am I making sense? So that's why the grace of Jesus and the free gift of Jesus on the cross is actually the very thing that every single human being wants. Because don't we all want love? We do. But yet you can't have it 
if Jesus didn't die on the cross and pay for your sins. Because without that, you're simply doing another good deed in order to earn a little bit more favor and balance the scales in your favor so that you can get to heaven. So every good deed that you do is just self-preservation. Yes? You see the audacity of religion contrasted with the simplicity of loyalty. Jesus invites us into this relationship with himself where he knows all about you, he knows all about me, he knows it all, and he loves you anyway. And now you and I don't have to give him something. Now we're free to give him what he's asked for. Now we're free to, to let him be God. He doesn't need my help. I get to partner with him, but he sure doesn't need my help. And I'm free to be my complete self before him with all my warts and scars and everything, and he loves it. But I love the fact that he doesn't leave me there. You know, if you were to look at a piece of sheet music, and I'll close with this little story so Chris, you can come on up. You know, if you were to look at a piece of sheet music and you don't know how to read music, this looks like a mess to you. It looks like nothing more than dots and squiggly lines on a page. Do any of you know what this is saying? Maybe a couple of you do. Maybe Chris does. I don't know. But if you know music, you know what this is saying. But if you don't, you don't understand this at all, do you? Yet if you were to take this piece of sheet music and give it to someone who was a musician, and they were to sit down at a piano and begin to play it, they would translate this into something beautiful. And you would say, oh, that's what that's saying? It's beautiful. You know, you look at your life, and you probably look at black dots and squiggly lines. You think, I don't even know what this is saying. What is this? This is a mess. What's this saying? Friends, if you give it to Jesus, just give it all to him. Let him translate it. He'll play it. It's beautiful. You are beautiful. In the right hands, you are beautiful. Let him play it. He'll make sense of all the black dots and squiggly lines in your life. He really will. But you have to give it to him. Let him do it. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads? Let's pray together this morning, okay? So there's two people here this morning. There's one. One is that you've, you gave your life to Jesus maybe a while ago, but religion has, stepped, has been creeping in, and um, you find yourself getting weary. You find yourself not being able to do enough. And I'm just here to tell you this morning that Jesus is here and he invites you to, um, to rest in him. Jesus is saying to you today that he is enough for you. He is enough. And what he did for you is enough. You don't need anything more. And you don't need to prove anything else. 
Would you receive that today? And then I'm going to invite you to do something super practical, if that's you. I'm going to invite you to start cutting things out of your schedule and out of your life so that you can draw close to Jesus. Just to pursue Him. You need, some, you need extra time to just to get some worship music going, get the Word of God going in your life. You need some extra time to do that, just to get that rest that your soul needs. And then the second person here this morning is maybe you've, uh, maybe you've never received Jesus as your Savior. Uh, you've been one of those people, maybe you've thought, well, Jesus is good, but I need this other thing. Or maybe you're one of those people that has thought that Jesus is the same as Buddha and Muhammad and all the others. He's just the same. But this morning you recognized, oh no, he is not. He is the only way, the truth and the life. He is the Savior. He is God. And you need him this morning. Hear me, friends. He paid for you. He paid for your life. He paid so that you could be right with God. And that's a free gift. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. That's a free gift. All you need to do this morning is receive it. Would you? Thank you, Jesus. I love you. I love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.